Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. We are two full weeks into 2022, um, and so we've kicked off this year with a series on prayer. Um, and so last week we talked about catching God's heart for the harvest through prayer, and we invited you to fast and pray through lunch this past Wednesday. Anybody do that? Anybody enjoy that? Anybody, uh, maybe you didn't necessarily enjoy it, I don't know. Um, but it, uh, maybe, maybe um, you uh, are just hearing about this, that's okay, we're going to give you another option, opportunity. So, um, so we, we uh, normally what we did was to encourage one another to just sort of take time that we normally would spend eating during lunch on Wednesday and use that time to lean into the Lord of the Harvest Uh, And to ask him to raise up and send out laborers for his harvest in and through Risen Church. And so we're asking to, to ask him to let us see the world around us not just as a place full of overwhelming problems, but as a plentiful harvest in need of laborers. And so we looked at Matthew 9 and we saw this this. Uh, story, or, or basically um, a teaching that God gives us about that. And so um, we started to simply fast and pray during uh, lunch and ask God to align our hearts with his heart and our eyes with his eyes and our vision with his vision and our desire for with his desire for the harvest in 2022. So some of you, maybe uh, you experienced this this week. In that time of prayer, maybe you've experienced this just in general in life when uh, praying, and you may have found yourself uh, not really knowing what else to say or even what to say during that time. Maybe when you're praying, you're kind of like, well, I kind of am all prayed out. Like, I've said what I need to say. Time to move on, right? But it's still lunchtime, right? Like maybe you find yourself running out of things to say to God often, and you're just like, well, I don't know what to do or what to say, and, you know, talk about like quiet time and stuff like that, so do I just like look at the wall or watch the grass grow, or like what do I do in this time? So maybe, maybe you read Matthew 9, 38, right, and, and what we talked about last week, maybe you're looking at it and you're like, well, okay, Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into your harvest. Uh, now what? Like, now what do I do? Like, I'm, I'm hungry. Do I just sit here? Like, uh, it, maybe from then on, all you could think about is food, and you just started looking for something else to distract you from the hunger. Right? And so if that was you, first of all, thank you for joining us in prayer. Because you know what? If that's all you prayed, you prayed, and he heard you, and it's awesome, and he loves that. And so thank you for leaning into the Lord. Like whether or not you feel like it was effective, it was. Period. It was. God sees you and he sees your desire. And I believe he wants to meet you there. And I also believe that he has more for us all. No matter where you were at this past week, I believe he has more for you. And I believe he has more for us um, and desires more for us, and that's what we want to talk about this morning, um, which is sort of another step on this journey of experiencing the heart of God in prayer by pressing into the heart of God by persisting in prayer. Say persist. So I don't know about you, 
but especially when it comes to prayer, uh, I, I found that I'm pretty good at talking myself out of praying. You're like, the pastor? <laughs> um, I honestly don't know why I do it. I really don't. Like, I, I, I really love praying. I do. Like, I love spending time, pr- like, crying out and praying to God for all kinds of good kingdom things. I love doing it, like whether it's for our church, whether it's for my family, whether it's for my own wisdom and maturity or healing or provision or, or somebody else's salvation. Like it, it could be for a particular need or it could be just because I need more of him. I really love to pray, like I genuinely do. But there's this little voice, and it's often a little bit louder than just a whisper, but sometimes it is just a whisper that kind of creeps into the back of my mind that says, what's the point? Right? Like, after all, doesn't God have it all figured out? And isn't he sovereign and all-knowing? Doesn't he already know the end from the beginning? So if it's God's will for your life, why waste all that time and energy praying about it? If it's going to happen, it's going to happen, right? Ladies and gentlemen, risen church, when you hear that heretical, fatalistic voice, which is what it is, that voice where nothing you do matters and we're all just puppets on God's predestined, predetermined, omniscient stage, I want you to recognize it for what it is, the voice of your enemy. And whenever you hear it or you sense it, what I want you to do is I want you to stop and I want you to pray right there. Now, is God omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent, which are just all fancy words for God being all-seeing, all-knowing, ever-present, and all-powerful? Is predestination and all that stuff good, godly, biblical terms? Yes. Amazing, beautiful, magnificent, glorious. Mess your face up with the glory of God stuff. Blow your mind, literally, with his goodness. Yes. Does he know the beginning from the end? Yes. He's bigger than you could ever imagine. He is. Which is why he's so big and his ways are so much higher than our ways and his absolute sovereignty is so real that it doesn't remove or contradict or in any way reduce our responsibility. Because he's that big. This has been a pretty controversial topic throughout history. I'm not sure if you're aware of that or not. And yet, I don't think that that's because God has not given us enough revelation. I think it's because our own pride gets in the way and we go beyond the revelation that he has given us. And we make assumptions that we're not designed to make. You see, throughout the Bible, we're not presented with a contradiction to be resolved. We're presented with a tension to be held in balance. And the stage upon which this balance is displayed is the stage of prayer. See, most people think this is just a philosophical question, right? But it gets extremely practical when you start Thinking about and entering into prayer and taking prayer seriously. Because if you want to know whether you actually believe in God's sovereignty and human responsibility, or if you want to know what you actually believe about those two things, look at your prayer life. 
You see, the truth is if prayer isn't a top priority in your life, then it means that you either don't believe God matters or you don't believe you matter to God. Here's what I mean by that. If you don't believe that God matters, then why pray? Right? Like, you don't need him. You got this. You can do life on your own, right? But maybe you believe that God does matter, right? He's important. You need him. You just don't think you matter to him. Right? Or maybe you just don't think that your prayers matter to him. Like, what good's it going to do? Or maybe you pray, you just don't really persist in prayer. Like, I mean, you already made your request, so if he's going to answer, then, I mean, he's going to answer, right? Like, why pester or annoy God? He has enough to deal with already, right? That's a really low view of God, by the way. Again, the root of it is that you don't think you matter to him. Or maybe, again, you think, well, God is good and he wants to give me good things, right? And so he's going to give me good things whether I ask for them or not. Yay. But on the surface, that one actually sounds pretty good, but practically it creates that fatalistic distance in your relationship with him where there's not really any reliance on him. And he's over there and you're over here and you're like, I'm good. See, when we read the Bible, his word makes it clear that we are to ask and to pray and petition and to request and to cry out to him day and night over and over and over again. And the scriptures make it clear that we're not annoying him by crying out to him for good things. We're not a bother. In fact, the issue is almost always that we give up way too soon. Like what we see throughout the Bible is a call to ask and then we'll receive. It's to seek and then we'll find. It's to knock and then the door will be open to us. James 4.2 even tells us that we don't have because we don't ask. And so this morning I want to look at a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18 verse 1 through 8. And I want to let Jesus not only call us to pray, but I want to call us to persist. I want to let I mean, should say, I want to let Jesus call us to persist in prayer. And I'm going to give you three reasons why we're called to persist in prayer. One, because prayer is the experiential and continual reminder that God is good. Two, because persistence purifies our prayers. And then number three, because persistent prayer cultivates faith, and faith is the currency of heaven. So here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else this morning, this is what I want you to get. Prayer is the sovereign means through which God has chosen to bless you and advance his kingdom upon the earth. Prayer is the sovereign means through which God has chosen to bless you and advance his kingdom upon the earth. If that messes your mind up, sit tight, I got more. I could spend all day talking about how every revival and renewal movement in history was actually preceded by a massive prayer movement. It's true. 
And every single one of them started with one or two people that persevered and persisted in prayer before the Lord. Sometimes they prayed for a long time. Again, I'm, I'm tempted to go off my notes because of how often this takes place throughout history. Every time there's a massive movement, somebody started a prayer movement that ended up catching fire and growing into a wildfire of revival and harvest every time. But while I love history and I love how history validates God's word, this morning I want to take you to the source and let God's word speak for itself. All right? So Luke 18. I'm going to read through verse 1 through 8. You guys with me? Here we go. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So we know what the point of this parable is, right? Like right out of the gate, we know where he's going. He tells them a parable to the effect that they ought always, say always, Always. to pray and not lose heart. Verse 2, he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice, sorry, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? All right. So why persist in prayer? Well, the first thing that we have here is because prayer is the experiential and continual reminder that God is good. All right, so let's take a look at the characters here. The characters that uh, Jesus uses in this parable. We got a widow, all right? And widows in that culture have no rights. And they've got no protections, Like, this woman epitomizes the vulnerability of the forsaken. And she's experienced some kind of real injustice. And the only one who can help her is an unjust judge. He's not a good man. He's not the good guy. He doesn't care about her. He doesn't care about her situation. He doesn't care about what anybody else thinks about him. He's an unjust and wicked person. All right? Jesus wants you to compare and contrast this unjust judge with God. He is not God. He wants you to compare them and then contrast and see how they're different. He wants you to to, to see yourself, though, in this widow, right? He wants us to see that the relationship between this widow and the unjust judge is both similar and yet extremely different than the relationship between God and his people. See, the judge is not good, he's not trustworthy, and he cares nothing at all for this widow. The only leverage she has is her persistence, and it annoys the judge. This is often how people perceive their relationship with God. 
They think, well, I, I don't want to bother God. You know? Or they think the only way that they can get an answer to their prayer is by being a bother to him. Or annoying him. Or trying to barter with him. Right? Say things like, God, I'll never cuss again. I'll join the church. I'll delete the images. I'll do whatever it takes. Just get me out of this mess that I'm in. Just give me that job. Just give me that thing. God, help me, rescue me, save me, and I'll do this. Right? And you start begging, and you start bartering, and you start trying to even do whatever it takes to get some kind of leverage over this judge who doesn't care about you. Or you, you demand that God gives you what you want. You start calling on all kinds of things, man. All kinds of names. To get God to stop withholding good things from them. Stop withholding. Help me, Oprah. Help me, Tom Cruise. Can't help it. It's not in my notes. I just, Talladega Nights is hilarious. All right. <laughs> It's funny, but it's an image. Like, that, if you've seen that movie, that, that, that picture is often what people are like. It's funny because people do that stuff, right? And then, and then this is the thing. Like, when you get what you want, you're like, all right, God, I'll leave you alone now. Think about that. All right, I got what I need. Sorry for bothering you. Thank you. We'll go back to our former relationship where you're way over there and I'm way over here. You see, in both cases, they treat God like an unjust judge. They assume God doesn't care about them and just wants to be left alone, but nothing's further from the truth. Look, the fact is that you have nothing of any value to God. That's true. He's God, right? You got nothing to offer him. <laughs> like, there's no leverage that you could, that you have that's going to make any difference. Unless he actually loves you. And if that's true, if he actually loves you, that changes everything. Because if he loves you, then the thing you have of great value is you. See, God's not like this unjust judge. He's good and he's just and he's holy. And because he's holy, he cannot sin, which means he cannot sin against you. He's the only one who is truly trustworthy in all of creation. And he says he loves you. And he says I'm not annoyed by you. He desires you to lean in and he desires to spend time with you. He doesn't want you to go away. He doesn't need you, but he does love you, which makes that love all the more powerful because you're actually wanted. God delights in you. See, to God, you're not an irritation to him. You're not a burdensome widow. You're his beloved bride. That ought to be revolutionary. Jesus distinguishes our relationship with God from the relationship between the judge and the widow. And then he says here, will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? 
Like the implication here is clear that God loves you, God is good, and he wants you to lean into him day and night. He desires for you to cry out to him. Why? Because this world is dark and it's difficult, but according to this world, you're like a widow. You got no leverage. All you have is your pestering annoyances. But he, the Lord, is the lifter of our heads. He's the revealer of what's true. He's our redeemer, and he's our strong shield, and he's our steadfast hope in the midst of trouble. He's the one who prepares a table for us, even in the presence of our enemies. He is the one who comforts us, even in the valley of the shadow of death. He's the bringer of true joy and satisfaction and pleasure forevermore. It's all in him. Because when we lean into him, we realize and remember that he is good and we are his. And so when we cry out to him and we lean into him, we experience that love and his kindness and his goodness. And when we cry out to him, we're reminded of who we are. Are, that we're his and he loves us and he has not forsaken us. And so, of course, we should persist in prayer, not because it annoys him, but because he delights in it. Because day and night, night and day, our prayers are like a sweet aroma of incense that arises under the Lord and fills his lungs with delight. Like I love the songs we just sang together, right? Because they get right to the heart of this. We sing right over it, but I'm telling you, this song preaches this message. Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run. (laughs) Like, are you running to the mountain of the Lord? Persistently, consistently, continually? Are you persevering whatever it takes to get to the mountain of the Lord? Like, the the fountain I drink from. Right? Be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from. Oh, he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide. Not the comforts of this life. May the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide. The ransom for my life. Oh, he is my song. Why? Because you are good. Because he's good. You hear the persistence in the song, in these lyrics? It's not just a one and done kind of thing. It's a continual experiential habit of running to the mountain of the Lord, drinking from the fountain and the source of his spirit. It's a continual song of delightness, goodness, and grace that he's the shadow where we hide and he's the ransom for our life. Day and night, night and day, we cry out to him and let incense arise, not to annoy him, but because he is good, because he's the wind inside my sails and the anchor in the waves. Because if you don't persist in this, you're going to be tossed about by the dark and stormy world that's just crashing in on you like a helpless widow with nowhere to turn. And listen, if you're not persisting like this, you're going to feel like that vulnerable widow. But you're not. You're his beloved bride. So you got to, this is, the call is to run to the king of your heart over and over and over again. And let him be your song. And let him be the fire inside your veins. And and the persistent echo of your days. You want to sing this song again, don't you? I kind of do too right now. Because he's good, and he'll never let you down. 
This is the gospel. God became a man, and he lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserved to die, and he conquered, conquered death in the grave by paving the way to eternal life through the resurrection to God Almighty, creating a relationship with him that's intimate, indwelling you with his very spirit, giving us eternal life, and an eternal life that doesn't just start one day when we die, but it starts now, on earth even. But it requires a persistence. You're called to persist. If you believe that, then cry out to him in prayer. Not just until you get what you want, but because he is ultimately all you could ever need. Like if you've lost sight of his goodness, then I'm, I'm willing to bet it's because you stopped drinking from the fountain of his love and grace. But all that can change, and it can change even this morning. I can notice that this is, it, 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 it's, it's our status as chosen people that motivates us to persist in prayer. Like Jesus does this a lot, right? He presents the sovereignty of God as the reason to persevere in prayer. Like it's not the grounds for relieving us of responsibility. It's the motivation to actually respond. Think about it. He's saying you've been given the ability to respond and now you have the responsibility to do so. And why wouldn't you? He's promised you he's going to answer with exactly what you need in abundance. May not be what you think you want in that moment, but it is what you need. And it's better than you could have ever asked or imagined. But you got to trust him. So ask and seek and knock and pray because we have a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children. So he encourages us to approach the Lord of all creation as beloved children approach their father. He tells us this in Matthew 6, 5, that your father knows what you need even before you ask. And that's actually the context for him teaching us to pray like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. And forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom. Right? This is the image that we see. The image here is that God's not withholding. It's that he's willing and able to give abundantly good things. And so he teaches us to ask for things, but it's all predicated on the Father's goodness and love and our reliance upon him as his beloved children. This is what his kingdom's all about. There's no bartering. There's no annoying here. It's, it is persistent, and it's relational, and it's joyful, and it's loving, and it's reliant. So maybe you're upset with God because he didn't give you something you wanted. Maybe you're like, he did let me down. Maybe it was even a good thing, but you made it an ultimate thing. James 4.3 says you ask and don't receive because you ask with motives or the motives of an adulterous people. You're only desiring to please yourself apart from your husband. That's a heavy one, right? But it gets to the heart of things, right? Because look, if the only time you're praying is, is when you want something from God, but you want it apart from God, then you need to realize that God loves you too much to give you things that are going to pull you away from himself. You see that? 
It's a hard one to kind of get in our, get in our souls. But it's so important because God loves to give his children good gifts, but not if those good gifts or those gifts that draw our hearts to the gift itself and away from the giver. That's not a good gift. That's a deceptive counterfeit gift. Like you need to realize that he's not an unjust judge who's annoyed with you. He's the king of our hearts and he loves you. Maybe you've prayed about a situation and you kind of quit praying because you feel like God didn't answer you. So you just kind of resigned to check out, even from that prayer life, and just sort of slog through your situation without him in just like a joyless, blah. right? If that's you, you need to know that's not God's heart for you. It's not. Like all that's going to do is make you feel abandoned and resentful. Like every step's going to reinforce the lie that God just wants you to suffer alone, joyless, and in the dark. There's no joy there. There's no enjoyment of him there. It's just burden and bitterness. And when facing difficulty, God doesn't want you to disengage from him. He's not calling you to just gut it out and suffer alone. That is not true obedience. Like goodness in life don't start when suffering ends. Not for the Christian, anyway. Abundant life in Christ begins the moment you receive him as your Lord and Savior, no matter what your circumstances are. Like, if you're just gutting it out in a joyless slog that you're calling obedience, you've missed the point entirely, and you're headed for bitterness and resentment. He's calling you to persist in prayer in the midst of it all. He's calling you to lift your eyes to him and to cry out to him and to set your eyes on him, not on yourself, not on your circumstance. If you're enduring suffering, but you don't endure in prayer through that suffering, then you're not going to grow in joy and intimacy. You're just going to grow more and more bitter. You see this? I'm not telling you to quit doing hard things. I'm telling you to stop quit, to stop, or sorry, to continue Praying in the midst of those hard things. You hear that? Like he's calling you to cry out, not check out. To lean into his goodness and to persist in prayer so he can speak to your soul even in the midst of the difficulty. To pray and persevere all the way through. And when you do that, you might even find that even in the darkest valley, even in the presence of your enemies, he's prepared a table of delight and fellowship and joy. And he's prepared a seat for you at a table where your eyes are on him and not on your problems. But the way that we accept the invitation and take a seat at that table... Is through persistent prayer. It's so important. And you, find, you, you might find that what you always thought was just trouble turns out to be an amazing adventure that he wants to take you on. Maybe he's got you on that adventure even now. Look, God can be so close and so good even in the midst of difficulty and he definitely uses suffering to grow us amen it's true that he's prepared a table for you even in the presence of your enemies but he's not going to force you to take the seat at the table of intimacy and joy that only happens again through persistent prayer and i'm not just talking about reading your bible 
I'm not just talking about gathering together even with the church. I'm talking about persisting in prayer with the lover of your soul. Okay? Now, this is for all of you that are sitting there thinking, well, I'm not really suffering right now. Things aren't really difficult for me. Praise God. Right? Because this isn't just for people who are in a season of difficulty. This, man, I, I, I almost want to just like ring a bell and get your attention right now because this is huge. That table is not only prepared for you in the midst of hard times. That table of intimacy and delight and joy is a table that he's prepared for you at all times. All times. Like if the only time you're persisting in prayer is when you're in a dark valley, then you've totally lost sight of just how good God is and you've settled for average counterfeit comforts that come from this world. And you're headed for a dark place because they will not satisfy. God desires for you to persist in prayer in the good times and in the hard times. Like his presence and delight is available in the valley and at the mountaintop it's, and everywhere else in between. That's why it's so important to fast and pray, whether you're having a hard time or not. It's to keep our souls aligned with where our true source of nourishment comes from, right? Like too often we rely upon our circumstances to be our primary source of comfort rather than his presence. And then when that fades, we're like, oh no. And then you realize, I got to press into Jesus. Or you could just press into Jesus in it all. Like This doesn't have to be your story. Don't wait for the darkness to creep in before you take your seat at the table of intimacy with Jesus. Right? Like cry out now, persistent prayer now, day and night, night and day. Let the incense of your prayers arise to the Lord of the harvest. Right? Because prayer is about way more than just getting what we want. Because what we really want, what we're really after, is God himself. Like he's the root of all pleasure and delight. And he's not withholding good things from you. He's saying, come to me and see what true life, abundant life, and everlasting life is all about now. Not just one day when you die. Not just one day when all the suffering ends. Second reason we persist in prayer is because persistence purifies our prayers. Like when we press in, we realize it's not about that thing or that situation or that particular need. It's about the one that we're drawing near to. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Because delighting in the Lord is the ultimate desire of every human heart. It doesn't mean to let yourself in the Lord. He's going to give you a Porsche. Right? Like, don't get me wrong. God desires to give good gifts to his children, but again, not at the expense of his relationship with them. I'm not saying Porsche is going to be at the expense of your relationship. Praise God if you got a Porsche. I'm not saying. But the point is, or Porsche. <laughs> The point, the point, though, is that he knows that he is the ultimate delight of our hearts. And so all the blessings in the world are worthless unless they cultivate deeper enjoyment in him. 
Remember, it's the unjust judge that just wants the widow to go away. But good King Jesus desires his beloved bride to persistently draw near. Again, this is why fasting and prayer is like a spiritual detox from counterfeit nourishments. Like it helps us to clarify where our true nourishment and our true joy comes from. Luke 11, verse 9 through 13 says this. Jesus is talking here. And he says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or, if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about eggs and bread and stuff here. <laughs> How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? Now, he does give good gifts, and actually we see in the book of Matthew that it says, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good gifts? He does like to give good things to us. But ultimately, the thing that matters is his presence, is himself. So when we persevere in prayer and we persist in prayer, it refines the heart behind our prayers. And Because the more we lean into him, the more we draw near to him, the more he draws near to us. And the more we experience his goodness and his love and his heart, and the more things we cry out for become connected to the root cry of God's heart for us and his kingdom and his will. Like, think about this. Have you ever prayed for something and it seemed like God gave you, like, the exact opposite? Right? I, I mean, I know I have. Like, I, I remember when I first became a Christian, I went through a series of significant injuries because I was an idiot. Right? And I was constantly praying that God would heal me because I didn't want to have to deal with the discomfort and the pain. At that point in my life, my identity was totally wrapped up in the affirmations of people around me as an athlete. That was my world. But it was through this process of crying out for healing that God met me. And he didn't just heal my bones and my ligaments. He healed my heart. He went way deeper. He humbled me and he rooted my 20-year-old ego in his love and his grace. He answered the root of my persistent prayer for healing. Because he knew that I needed something deeper than I even realized. I remember one particular night, I was in my dorm room in college, and I couldn't sleep because I just shattered my collarbone in one of my many stupid snowboarding accidents. And I had to wear this figure eight brace around my shoulders um, that kind of pulled them back like this. And I had to wear it for months because it was, it, was, it was bad. It was uncomfortable. It was setting the collarbone. and I don't know. It was, it was not fun. Um, but I remember at about 3 a.m., I, I was struggling, man. And I, and I, I just kind of sat up, slowly made my way to my desk. It's 3 in the morning, and I remember reading Philippians. Philippians 4. 
And I remember coming across this passage. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I have been that whole time praying that God would heal me. I had total faith he could do it. Still do. No, no, they could. I had just seen him miraculously heal somebody instantaneously. That's another story. But I remember realizing as I read that passage that I thought that verse meant that I could do amazing physical things through Christ who strengthens me. That's how it's often used, right? Like that foolish jump that I had no business trying on the snowboard that I just crushed myself with. Like I could do that all things through Christ who strengthens me, especially this big jump here. Wee! Bam! I thought I could do all things. Guess what? You're an idiot. <laughs> right? Like I remember experiencing, though, in the midst of this, that the context had always been about pressing into the heart of God in all circumstances. That's what it was about. I remember experiencing the healing hand of God that night, and my collarbone was still broken, but my soul was rejoicing because he did a deeper healing in me that night that went way beyond my bones. Like, I kept praying for healing. I kept persisting and leaning in, and as I did, I was taking my seat at his table, even in the midst of the difficulty, and I offered my prayers to the one who purifies them and answers them in a way that's beyond all I could ask, think, or imagine, according to the power at work within me. There was a deep joy and a satisfaction in him, even in spite of my shattered collarbone and me not being able to do the things I thought that I should and be cool in front of everybody with. And I offered my prayers to the one who purifies them. And, I, and I've seen God miraculously heal, but honestly, it's the deep soul healing that's made the most impact in the long run. Which leads me to the third reason, to persist in prayer. And that's that persistent prayer cultivates faith, and faith is the currency of heaven. So there's a lot of tension to be balanced in this passage, Right? which requires real trust in a God who's higher and bigger than us, right? And so notice how this passage ends. Look back at verse 6. And he says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So I want you to see that there's a lot of intentional tension presented here, right? There's tension between his absolute sovereignty and our responsibility. There's tension between the duration period in which we need to persist in prayer, right? Like we cry out to him day and night, will he delay long over them? Jesus says that justice is going to be given speedily, right? And yet it's long enough to provoke the question of faithfulness upon the earth at his return. Like there's tension there. There's a reason. Like it sounds a lot like 2 Peter 3.8, which says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. I think it's important he says beloved. You are beloved. You're not abandoned. You're not forsaken. Don't overlook this, beloved. 
that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And he's talking about his return. And so, of course, there's this election bomb in here also. The elect, right? Those who are crying out are categorized as his elect or his chosen. Which, of course, brings up the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And yet in all of it, these things are not contradictions to be resolved. They're tensions to be held in balance. And all of this tension finds its balance in prayer. I'm going to give you an image. And I'm not actually going to give it to you. I'm going to remind you of an image that the Bible gives us. We recently walked through the book of Revelation. And one of the most impactful images for me came from Revelation 8. If you guys walk through this with me, you, you might remember it. It describes a vision um, of all the prayers of God's people rising like the sweet-smelling smoke of incense unto the Lord. And it, God inhales, he's inhaling and savoring these sweet prayers for deliverance and justice. And he's inhaling them into his divine lungs. And then those prayers intermingle with the very breath of God, which is also symbolic of his spirit. Like as his people on the earth are praying, our prayers now, not just the past prayers or future prayers, all prayers are being inhaled by the Lord of eternity. And he savors them. That's the image we got in Revelation. Then the very next vision we get in Revelation is the blowing forth of God's spirit upon the earth like divine trumpets blasting. And we see God's redemptive plan unfolding upon the earth like a divine exhale that is in direct response and intermingled with the prayers of his beloved people. That image is awesome. It's a powerful image of the balance between human responsibility and God's absolute sovereignty, that they are not contradictions. It's not a contradiction to be resolved. It's a tension to be balanced and embraced, and it's embraced through faithful and persistent prayer. Okay? So, do I have time for this? Yeah. I'm going for it. Here we go. Quick word about election. The doctrine of election often gets hijacked into a secondary philosophical dialogue about God's ways. Right? Think about that. Like, we miss the heartbeat of the doctrine altogether, which is always about gratitude. Like, every time the concept of election or, or certain people being chosen is presented in the scriptures, it's always in the context of gratitude for God's faithfulness to us, his generosity to us. Like, it's never a reason to question God's judgment about why he chooses some and not others. Because the truth is, you don't know and neither do I. And we probably never will. If you think that's unfair, it, like, it's because you haven't come to grips with the fact that we all deserve eternal condemnation. All of us. Like, because that's what the weight of sin actually demands. Anything else is a very low view of God and a very high view of humanity. And so the fact that he's chosen any of us is pure grace. It, the response is nothing less than gratitude. So the fact that he's chosen any of us is just mind-blowing grace. And the whole concept of questioning who is elect or who isn't, it's nonsense. Like you should never assume that about anybody. 
ever. Like, in fact, as far as I'm concerned, I have never met anyone who isn't God's elect. In my mind, if I've met you, if you're in front of me, if you're in this building, then as far as I'm concerned, you are his chosen and elect, and he desires you. Because I'm a spirit-filled, grace-bought believer who's filled with the good news of the gospel, and my desire is to share it. That's it. That's what I'm called to. So, so let's put that mess in the grave, right? Like this whole why God chooses some and not others, I don't know, and neither do you. Like the thing that should captivate you is that he has chosen you. That's it. Like God used an old man named Carl Scott to bring this revelation to me years ago. Many of you have heard me talk about this a lot because I like to talk about it a lot, and I'm going to continue to talk about it a lot because, honestly, it's the most powerful demonstration of this truth that I have ever experienced. Carl was a man in his 90s, an old man. He he was talking to a bunch of college students, and somebody said, since you're probably going to see Jesus before most of us in this room because he's in his 90s and he's, like, hunched over in a walker, um, he asked, like, what's the first question you're going to ask him? And that old man, bent over on his walker, he looks at the ground and just, whew, I, told, I cannot say this. Without, he, he bends over, he looks at the ground, his eyes start watering, and he says, he looks up and he goes, why me? Why did you choose me? And he said, I've never understood it, but I'll get to thank him for eternity. That was the heart of a man chosen by God. That was the heart of a man who recognized that. It's the heart of a man who pressed into the heart of God. And it was the heart of a man in whom God had cultivated great faith. And I believe God wants to cultivate that same faith in you as well. Will God find this kind of faith in Risen Church in 2022? I believe he will. Will you draw near to him? Will you cry out to him? Will you faithfully persevere in prayer? Carl died actually this past year, but he didn't start thanking or pressing into Jesus or thanking him for salvation just when he died, right? He started the moment he was reborn unto new life in Christ. Like that attitude of persistent gratitude and reliance doesn't cultivate pride. It cultivates humility and a tenacious witness to the grace that you've experienced, 2022 is going to hold a lot of unknowns for us as a church, but they're not unknown to God. He cares more about the mission and the vision that he's placed before us than we do. It's his harvest. He desires to see long-term healthy growth here more than we do. He desires to see disciples making disciples more than we do. He desires to see the Great Commission fulfilled in our city and to the ends of the earth more than we do. He desires to see our kids' ministry flourish with joyful laborers who serve those that he calls the greatest in the kingdom even more than we do. Like He desires these things. He desires us to have all the abundant resources that are needed to make disciples who make disciples. He desires to provide spaces and places for us to gather consistently and to point one another to Jesus more than we do. He desires spaces and places for staff and leadership to train together and strategize together and pray together and do the work in the ministry together and to invest in each other and for us to share life with one another and our city and beyond. God desires to see the lost saved and raised into mature laborers for his harvest in and through risen church more than we do. But he's also desired us to ask him for it. 
And he's not just called me to ask for it or even just the leadership of this church to ask. He's called you all, all of us, to press in. Even if it's your first time here, even if you're a guest from out of town, like I'm asking you to pray for us. To pray, even to, to fast and to persistently lean into the Lord of the harvest on behalf of our church and his mission. So this weekend, I'm sorry, this week, you know, I ask you to fast and pray through lunch. And this Wednesday, I want to invite you to persist in prayer by fasting and praying through breakfast and lunch. Right? And then you see where this is going. Because the week after that, I want to ask you to persist in prayer and fast through breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then the week after that, I want to invite you on January 26th to fast and pray during the day, that Wednesday, and then we're going to gather here and break fast together with a meal, eating together, and worshiping Jesus and praying together. I think 6 p.m., is that what we said? 6 p.m.? 6 p.m. here at the water table, January 26th. You can mark your calendars for it. And so this week, I am asking you to specifically pray for God's favor upon our church and our church leadership and to continue to press into the Lord of the harvest to ask him to send out laborers for his harvest in and through Risen Church in 2022. Let's pray.